I'm starting reading at verse 1. This is God's word. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eritrea and the region of Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, while Ananias and Caphiot struggled saying this this week whenever I was preparing to read this. Caphias, the high priests. Caiaphas, that's how you say it. Caiaphas, the high priests. And the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? He answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, soldiers asked him, saying, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. Now, as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And with many other exhortations he preached to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this, above all, that he shut John up in prison. Well, amen. So far the reading of God's word, and we thank him for it. Before we come to think about it together, let's pray and ask for God's help. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we do thank you for your word, this word which came to John and the word which comes to us today. 
We pray that you would give our attention to it. Pray, Heavenly Father, that you would move by the power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds as we hear your word preached in our presence. We ask for these things only for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, in the year 2012, Barack Obama was President of the United States of America. Queen Elizabeth II was on the throne of England with David Cameron as her Prime Minister. Angela Merkel was Chancellor of Germany. Putin was leading Russia and Nicolas Sarkozy in France. The London Olympic Games had been a huge success and the British nation was riding a wave of positivity and good energy. Meanwhile, Toby Henry George was born to Jamie and Kate Maguire of Scholars Court Dremor, just across the road from Supervalue. There was a lot going on in the world. The headlines were filled with all sorts of news, both on the the international and the local stage. But to us, in our family, the main event was Toby's birth. And it was the same in 2015 with Joel. Many things going on around the world, but our focus was on the birth of our son. I wonder if you noticed how Luke started the passage. And yet, there is one event that he lands on and wants us to focus on at the start of chapter 3. There's lots going on in the world. There are events going on across the Roman Empire. There are things happening locally in Judea. They were dominated by the major rulers of the day. Luke locates his account in a specific time and a specific place for Theophilus, who's reading it. We're in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Pontius Pilate is governor of Judea. There are other tetrarchs whose names I struggle to pronounce, and then we're told about the high priests in the temple. These people are are getting the headlines. But for Luke, there is something going on that is way more important than all of that. For Luke, the main event is taking place in the wilderness. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. This is actually a very biblical way to put things. Throughout the Old Testament, the prophets are introduced to us by saying the word of the Lord came to such and such. We can see from the the references here that Luke makes that John the Baptist is very much in the mould of the Old Testament prophets. Many people, in fact, would say that John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. But what I want us to notice is that for Luke, the word of God coming to John is absolutely the main event 
that is taking place in the world. All of these world leaders are mentioned. But what is most important? It's that the word of God came to John. In relation to this, the commentator Dale Ralph Davies says this. I think this is really helpful. He says there is scarcely anything more vital and important than the public address of God's word to his people. That is the biggest event. If you are in a congregation where week by week the scriptures are clearly explained and carefully applied, must you not say the word of God came? What a treasure. He goes on to say this. Here is a woman who spends part of two days studying a Bible passage and then goes off to teach it to eight to ten women in a Bible study. What she does there may be more important than all that will clutter the 24-hour news channel in that day. So I want to take a moment, just now as we begin a new year, we're still in January 2024, I want to take a moment to encourage all of us that God's word is and should be the most important thing in all of our lives. More than everything that's plastering the newspapers or the online pages of the BBC or Twitter or X or whatever we're calling it nowadays, TikTok, Facebook, whatever else, God's word is so much more important. And I want to thank everybody who does put in time and effort, especially here in this congregation, teaching our children, for example, the Bible. That's more important than everything else. Teaching our children the Bible is more important than everything else they will ever learn, that they hear the word of God. Thank you to those of you who take time to prepare Sunday school lessons. Good News Club, JYC, for all the time you spend in family worship. Thank you to those of you who pay attention to God's word as it is preached. Those who come along to the midweek and the Presbytery Academy. It doesn't go unnoticed. And I personally appreciate it. But much more than that, you are investing in something. You're investing in something more important than everything else that is going on in the world. You're devoting yourself to something that lasts forever. Isaiah says the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. All the rulers mentioned in Luke chapter 3 are dead and gone today. They no longer fill the headlines. Today's newspapers will wrap tomorrow's fish suppers. But God's word endures forever. So thank you to everyone here who is devoted to it. Who has committed your time and effort to learn it and to share it. You will not regret one moment spent in God's word. You will not regret one moment here in public worship hearing God's word 
You will not regret one moment sharing God's word. You won't regret it in this life and you certainly will not regret it in eternity. God, his church and his word will endure forever. That's where we should be putting our time and our effort. Nothing is more important. I should add, this is important, that if anybody would be interested in learning a bit more about how to teach or apply God's word to others, either in Sunday school or in in maybe a one-to-one setting or leading a Bible study, maybe even you're interested in preaching, please let me know. and I would love to talk that through with you. And again, as I have before, and no doubt will do again, can I appeal to you to pray to God that he would send Bible teachers into the harvest field, and particularly within PCI where we're experiencing a shortage. And maybe, just maybe, God is calling you towards ministry of word and sacrament. Please let me know and we can explore those options. The word of God came to John and it changed his life and it's a turning point in the gospel and it changes our lives. Today we're going to focus the bulk of our time, the rest of our time, thinking through what this word was. What was John's message? Look with me at verse 7, the first part of verse 8. John said to the multitudes that came to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. I've just said, let's pray for more ministers in the PCI. I think if John was preaching for a call in a vacancy, it's not likely that the congregation vote for him after him calling them a brood of vipers. But John's message is the gospel. This is the word of God that came to John. And so we can learn from John's words because they are God's words. Calling people a brood of vipers might not be the way that I would approach things. But John's message is a message of repentance which is a really important message for each one of us. And I think it says three things to us about repentance. It tells us, first of all, that repentance is necessary. Secondly, that repentance is personal. And finally, that repentance is radical. So first, repentance is necessary. People are coming out to John to be baptised and he warns them they must be repentant. And they must bear fruit worthy of repentance. These people must have been Jewish. They were people of Israel. People who could trace their own family line back to Abraham. And for them that was a great comfort. They were the children of Abraham. And that means they were God's chosen people. And so they thought of themselves as protected by God. But John says, you see what John says? Verse 8. He says, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you 
that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. John's making a really important point for them, especially when we consider that he's making the way for Jesus. He's saying to them that simply being born into the right family is not enough to secure salvation. Repentance is needed. They would have thought of John's preaching as a bit much. They probably thought to themselves, I'm okay. My father, my grandfather, we're in the line of one of the tribes that are descended from Jacob. We are children of Abraham and God will be good to us. John says, no, no, no. You must realise that simply being born in the line of Abraham is not enough. It should not be a comfort to you. If God so wanted, he could turn stones into Abraham's children. What is necessary to being a true child of Abraham, a spiritual descendant, is that they repent and bear fruits worthy of repentance. And we might think to ourselves, well, this is the New Testament. So here's a new teaching for the New Testament, but actually it's not new. People had grown accustomed to a way of thinking and they needed to be corrected by John. But the whole way through the Old Testament, we see the message that people should not be content with the outward signs of belonging to God's people. There should be inward repentance. One of the very clear verses on this is where Moses is teaching the people in in chapter 10 of Deuteronomy. And he says, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. Now, I don't want this to become an anatomy lesson, but hearts do not have foreskins. Moses is basically saying to the people, circumcision represents a cutting away of sin. But simply having the outward sign is not enough. You need to turn away from sin in your heart. You need to circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. And so Moses' words in Deuteronomy are the exact same idea that John is saying here. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Repentance is necessary in the Christian faith. This is a really, really important concept for Christians. Many people think that the outward things are what are important. Going to church, being baptised, giving money into the offering plate, having parents or grandparents who are Christians. For a lot of us, that's like having Abraham as our father. There's a physical sense in which we belong to the church. But we're not sharing in the faith that Abraham had in Christ. Repentance is necessary. The outward signs are good and important. There's nothing wrong with them. But they should provide no comfort unless we have also repented of sin. It means that we're truly sorry. That we confess our sin to God and that we we turn away from it to live in a totally different way. And that's what's shown in the next two points. Repentance is personal and repentance is radical. We'll cover both of these pretty quickly. Repentance is personal. 
The people ask John, what should we do? And he tells them, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. And then there are a bunch of tax collectors and they come to John and John says, collect no more than what is appointed for you. And then some soldiers come and they say, what should we do? And John says, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely. Be content with your wages. You see that repentance is personal. Each person has something they should do to repent. It's different for the crowds, for the tax collectors and for the soldiers. And so it looks different for you than it does for me. Than it does for the person sitting beside you. We all have our own besetting sins. And we all need to think deeply about what they are. We need to look into our own hearts and ask, what are those things that I am doing, that I am saying, that I am believing, which break God's law? And then we need to repent of those things. We need to say sorry and we need to turn away from them. This is not an easy thing to do. Sitting with your own thoughts for a minute or two is not easy. That's why social media is so popular in our day. It's a distraction from having to live with your own thoughts. And so to sit and think through your sin, well, that's a particularly painful thing to do. It would be easier, wouldn't it be easier just to say, God, I'm sorry for everything I've done wrong. That covers it all. It's a bit like the Maguire family, Grace, the prayer that we say before meals. God, thank you for everything, amen. And then we get stuck in because we're hungry and we're ready to eat. Repentance shouldn't be like that. Repentance needs us to think through and to repent of our own personal sins personally. Repentance is personal. And repentance is radical. For each of the groups mentioned, the crowds, the tax collectors, the soldiers, there's something to do. Repentance is not easy. The fruit that is worthy of repentance that's needed in our lives, it's personal to us, but it is obvious to those who are watching. Repentance is radical. It shows itself in how we live. Coming to Christ means turning away from the things of this world. It it means a, a total change of desires and dreams and hopes. It changes the value that we place on things. It changes the way we live. Repentance is radical. There is a shed in the shipyards in Belfast, and I'm pretty sure I've used this illustration before. I think it's a really good one, though. A shed in the shipyards in Belfast, which is called the Nicholson Shed. And it's so called because after the preaching of the early 20th century evangelist W.P. Nicholson, so many men turned to Christ. And they started returning all of the tools that they had stolen from the shipyard over their years of working there. And so many tools were returned that they had to build a new shed to hold them all. And so they called it the Nicholson Shed. These men's lives were turned around. They were changed. It was obvious to others that their lives were changed. They, were, they demonstrated their repentance in the things they did. Repentance is radical. 
And so as we bring things to a close, I think we can look at John's own life. And we can say that for John, he was radical. We see the marks of repentance in his life. His life was changed because the word of God came to John. It led him to preach in the way that he did. He preached with boldness and with clarity. It led him to humility for himself and to the exaltation of Christ. He preached a message of repentance that said there is salvation for those who repent. But there is judgment for those who will not repent. He said people will be baptised with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His own personal repentance took him to a place where he extolled the name of his cousin. He said, Jesus is so much greater than I am. I'm not worthy even to untie his sandals. And eventually... John's life was so radical that although Luke only reports his imprisonment by Herod, we know from Mark's gospel that John was killed for condemning Herod's incestuous adultery. John didn't only preach repentance, he lived it out. He bore fruits worthy of repentance. And for John, as it should be for us, Repentance is necessary, repentance is personal, and repentance is radical. Let me pray for us.